With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags, posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job. I think it's really important for CA teams to understand that within the context of the U.S. government interagency-wide objectives in a given country or region, their mission is more than likely just a small piece of the overall puzzle and is almost certainly not the main effort. Um, and I think it's essential to understand that you're part of a team uh, and to behave as such and, and to serve as such. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. And we're joined today by two gentlemen, uh, one recently retired and one who's still going, Zach Heilman and Kevin Chapla. There are a lot of civil affairs folks who will decide at some point to go into the FAO program, the Foreign Affairs Officers Program. And so we want to have this discussion today about what the FAO program is all about, who qualifies for it, whether it applies to active reserve component uh, soldiers, whether there's anything in the other services, and what they do. Uh, We also want to discuss, because this is the 1CA podcast, what the connection is, if any, between FAOs and civil affairs. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, Zach, let me start with you and then turn to Kevin. Um, if you could please tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, what you've done the last couple of years, uh, recently retired and, and earned your MBA degree. So you're heading out to the civilian mar- uh, marketplace now. So um, what have you done most recently in your military career? Yeah, so right now, I just finished up two years as an instructor at the Western Hemisphere Center for Security Cooperation at Fort Benning, Georgia. It's a, a branch of from Army University, uh, where we we train uh, U.S. soldiers and uh, partner nation soldiers from Latin America. Um, I was a CGSC instructor, uh, most recently teaching history and leadership. Um, Before that, I served in embassies in Guatemala, Costa Rica, and El Salvador, most recently. Awesome. Thank you very much. And and thank you for putting in so many years to the nation. Uh, That's very impressive. Kevin, what have you been up to? Yes, John, uh, thanks for having me back on the podcast. Uh, think of myself as a pretty mediocre guy and mediocre officer, so uh, I don't know how I got on here a second time. But, uh, yeah, here I am, um, Army officer, husband, chronically fatigued father of, of twin three-year-old boys. And quite honestly, I think I've had a rather undistinguished military career. But um, spent 10 years, and it uh, looks like I'm halfway done. That's great, man. Congratulations. And uh, we'll get to this later on, but I know you're somebody who's going over now from civil affairs to the FAO program. So that's, we're going to touch on that later. Let me start with this question about the, the five W's that we always care about, the, the who, what, when, where, why. Um, and we can talk about the how as well. Uh, so first of all, maybe Zach, to you first, who qualifies to become a foreign area officer? The FAO branch is open, I think, to all branches of the Army. Some branches get picked up more frequently. I think it's a function of the VTIP process. 
which when I came on board, there was no VTIP process. There was a functional area designation and the army told you, this is what you're gonna do. But now it's done through the VTIP process. And as I understand it, it's one of the more popular uh, career fields, functional areas to request. So the folks that wind up coming into the FAO branch are generally coming from combat arms branches. Um, a lot of guys come from infantry special forces. MI branch sends a large percentage of officers to, to the FAO branch. But then the other combat arms branches, you know, field artillery, a lot of aviators. Um, and then also there's a lot of logisticians. Um, I've only run across a couple of guys that have come over from civil affairs. Um, I, again, I think that's a function of CA branch letting folks go uh, to go and try something else. Okay, great. And let me cover uh, one of the acronyms that you threw out, the VTIP, Voluntary Transfer Incentive Program, which is, I believe, for individuals who want to go to a different branch or area of concentration, they can apply for it. If they get in, they might get money or they might get some other kind of incentive, additional dwell time or whatever, to stay in that, in that new area, new branch, probably for a minimum number of years. Like once you go into that thing, you have to stay there for a while to make it worth the investment that the military puts in. Yeah, one thing with the, with the FAO program is the Army invests a lot of money in training you. You go to language school. Um, a lot of times you'll wind up going to graduate school. And so there's uh, a payback period for that, um, an active duty service obligation. Um, and so you wind up having to, to pay that time back. One of the things that I tell folks, because I get asked all the time, like, how do I become a FAO? And it's through the VTIP program, but to set yourself up for success, if you want to become a FAO, is you have to be a successful company grade officer. I taught at West Point for three years. And so a lot of my former students who are now lieutenants and junior captains, they're coming to me asking, hey, what do I have to do? And number one is you do your job and you do it well. As I understand it, you can apply through the VTIP program to become a FAO after you have one OER in your key developmental position for your branch. So company command or battery command. Um, and once you have that first OER in your KD job, then you can apply um, through the VTIP process, which I think happens twice a year. Okay, awesome. Thank you. And Kevin, you've gone through this. So now you're in the pipeline. What can you add about who qualifies and, and what it was like for you? Yeah, that, that's, that's all correct. And uh, like Colonel Heilman already said, a lot of it uh, with, with reference to the semi-annual VTIP, VTIP panel has a lot to do with timing and whether or not your branch is, is able to let you go from a, a personal strength standpoint. Um, but generally, they're looking for, you know, post-command captains who have a strong file and who are competitive for promotion, of course, because they're investing, you know, a lot of time and, and resources in you. Um, but, you know, they're also sort of looking for officers with these five kind of niche traits, or what they call uh, functional competencies um, in 600-3. Um, first of which being is the ability to operate worldwide in, in the gym environment, the joint uh, intergovernmental, international, and, and multinational um, environments. Uh, second, which is sort of literacy and understanding of how the interagency and NGOs actually function and why they do what they do. Um, they're looking for people who are well-versed in U.S. foreign policy and regional security cooperation priorities, um, political military expertise, and, and a little bit of historical and cultural expertise. And then finally, language proficiency, whether that's, you know, language that you speak natively or 
Um, you can demonstrate that you have the capacity to learn a language with relatively high score on the, the defense language aptitude battery or the, the D-Lab. Thank you very much. In the U.S. Army, we have three components, active guard and reserve. Zach, question to you, how many are active, how many are guard, are there any reserve as well? So I have heard of guard and reserve FAOs, but I've never actually met one. Um, now, I've worked with some guys who came onto active duty, um, not just like for like an activation for a year or two, but they left the guard or the reserves and came back onto active duty to become FAOs. Um, I've run across several guys that have done that um, and have gone on to be really successful. But in terms of actually meeting FAOs from the guard or the reserves, I've personally never seen it. Okay. Kevin, do you know, uh, now that you've gone through the application process, do, do they apply to compos one, two, and three? Uh, what I do know about uh, assessing as reserve component FAO is um, there aren't nearly as many resources. Uh, and they do require that you already have, you know, the language skills and the, the advanced uh, graduate degree to, to assess into the reserve component. I think it's probably a separate panel. Uh, it's not, it has nothing to do with the semi-annual VTIP panel that someone would apply to to be a FAO or acquisitions officer or whatever other functional area an officer might be interested in. Yeah, so I guess if anyone's listening and they have interest, then they should probably just go to their career branch person and ask the question or, or look at look online to find out you know, when the FAO program, uh, when they're assessing and how they get in, regardless of what compo they're in. So here's the office space question. The, the what would you say you do here? Zach, to you first, what does a FAO do and why did they do it? Um, actually, can I defer to uh, to Kevin here on this one to go first? I really like the uh, the explanation that oh. that that he's got, and then I'll, I'll I'll come back in. Yeah, yes, sir. Outstanding. I'd love to. Uh, even though I've never actually done this job, I feel like I at least have a decent understanding of what the purpose is. So yeah, of course. In addition to TPS reports, which you know are universal across the army, as John well knows. Um, there's a, a way to frame this that uh, I, I learned from one of our mentors in the 48 Gulf community, which is the, the Middle East and North Africa FAO area of concentration. Uh, there's an officer named Colonel Rick Balestri. He's the SDO dat in Muscat in Oman uh, in the Middle East. And he's one of our mentors has sort of been uh, guiding the younger, newer, junior FAOs on our path to be hopefully contributing members of the, of the community. But he broke it down so that like my, my tiny brain could, could understand this. And, uh, you know, within the context of a mill team in an embassy, if you can imagine three points of a triangle, one point being the U.S. embassy country team, another point being the host nation and, and their, their government employees or, or populace for that matter. And then the, the last point of the triangle would be like the DOD. Um, FAOs, as, as he sees it, and, and now I do um, by default, are essentially sitting in the middle of this triangle sort of serving as these three-way translators amongst the three, the three parties, the, the embassy, the host nation, and the DOD. Um, they're constantly answering and answering questions and providing context for the communication that's happening across the triangle. Um, so this could be literal foreign language translation, of course, but also could be something as simple as uh, translating, you know, army acronyms or, or jargon into some sort of coherent English um, for a foreign service officer, for example, working in the embassy for the State Department. Um, could be explaining what a recent change in the Ministry of Defense in a given country could mean for a combatant commander's priorities in whatever region, um, for example. 
Um, so in that sense, like FAOs have to be well-versed in, of course, foreign language, but also army speak and, and DOD language, uh, but also be fluent in the language and communication styles that are used across um, the interagency community as well. Um, so I thought from Colonel Blessie, that was like a really simple way to, to, to break down what a FAO is even there doing um, in an embassy. Awesome. Sir, what would you add to that? Yeah, so working abroad in embassies, you're going to work in one of two distinct billets. You're either going to work in a security cooperation office or you're going to work in the attache office. Um, my entire career has been in the security cooperation side. So I was working under the United States Southern Command. Um, and wherever you are, you're going to be working under the geographic combatant commander, ma um, managing programs like training programs for partner nation folks, any military aid programs, joint exercises. Um, there's just a really wide variety of things that you're gonna be doing as a security cooperation officer. Um, on the attache side, um, just as the ambassador is the president's personal representative in a country, the defense attache is the secretary of defense's personal representative. And then it goes down um, with the army attache, Navy attache, et cetera. And so you're there in an official diplomatic capacity. Okay, so diplomatic capacity, but two equal departments. However, the they're not really because the, um, the ambassador represents the president of the United States who runs that mission, right? And so the DAT reports to the ambassador. Is that or the chief of mission? So it's that um, it's that triangle uh, that that Kevin mentioned earlier. Yeah, the the SDO, the senior defense official slash defense attache, that's the title that's given to the to the senior U.S. military officer in, in a country. And that individual reports not only to the ambassador, they're, they're, they're a member of what's called the country team, which are the, the section heads for each of the sections, the political officer, the economic officer, you know, the regional security officer, each of the different offices in the embassies, they have their leader that reports to the to the ambassador and so the sdo dat is that senior guy in the embassy um, but they also work for the geographic combatant commander it's a weird relationship because they also report to defense intelligence agency and so uh, it's you're really pulled in in three different directions um, as an sdo dat um, now it's interesting because in some countries they're blurring the lines between the attache office and the security cooperation office. Um, and attaches, like an army attache is working hand in hand with an army section chief. And where one goes, the other goes. And so they have equal levels of access and um, influence with the, with the partner nation. That's not doctrine. And as far as I know, it's still completely separate, like reporting channels and evaluation channels. Because I mean, that, at the end of the day, that's what's important. Who's going to sign off on your your OER? Okay, so it's a lot of meetings, a lot of emails, a lot of reports you have to send up. the The reason why it all exists, right, is so that we can get closer to these nations, influence them to whatever U.S. strategic ends there are, and um, and help them in the defense space. Right? Is that this is the the FAO's reason for existing is to be this belly button, Kevin, as you talked about in the middle of that triangle to bring stuff together and to make friends and keep them on our side. Is that what you say? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all about relationship building. Um, that's the probably the most important thing 
that you're doing is building those relationships with partner nation militaries. You know, I've had two extremely different experiences. Um, when I was down in, in Costa Rica uh, in 2011 to 2014, the Costa Rican Congress was adamant about not working with the U.S. Department of Defense. And then once I left, um, they had an increase in crime in the country and they changed their tune. But my time down in El Salvador was completely different. We supported El Salvador and their government and military during their um, internal conflict from, I think, 1979 to, I believe, 1992. And in return, the Salvadorans deployed with us to Iraq. Um, they were there from early on, 2003, 2004 timeframe, until the uh, international coalition dissolved. I think they had been under the, the Spanish when the Spanish left the Salvadoran state. And then in 2011, the Salvadorans deployed to Afghanistan. So we had their backs through security cooperation programs, and then they had our backs. And so it, it was really interesting to see that the different dynamic between working with the Costa Ricans, which wasn't a bad relationship. The relationship that we had with, with the Coast Guard, with the Aerial Surveillance Service, the Ministry of Public Security, it was very good. It was just the upper echelons of the, it was politics. Definitely. No, those are really good examples. Um, thank you. Kevin, next question to you. Talk about the, the where of these five W's of the FAO program. And I understand that FAO has become specialized in typically one region of the world. So is the FAO world divided by the DOD combatant commands or something else? Uh, to answer your question, no. It more closely resembles the State Department's bureaus than it does the, the DOD's um, uh, UCP or the Geographic Combat Commands. So in, in fact, from October of 2022, there's going to be, or starting in October 2022, there's a bit of consolidation. Um, they're going to eliminate three of these AOCs and there will just be five. So at the start of this new consolidation, you'll have Western Hemisphere, so the Americas, Europe, Eurasia, uh, Middle East and North Africa, where I work or will work, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and then big consolidation in the Asia Pacific of all Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia into one um, monster AOC of Asia Pacific. And that uh, more than likely is, you know, sort of a response to the Chinese. Um, so until then, the countries within the legacy AOCs of Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, and China, which had its own AOC, um, and, and also Central and South Asia, those are all going to be sort of divvied out um, to the remaining five. Thank you. Gentlemen, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion about uh, the FAO program, but the connection with civil affairs and whether there are overlapping missions and um, the reporting requirements with FAOs and how they may connect to CA teams. So we'll be right back. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, 
you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. Something for everyone. The world traveler, the civil engager, the warrior diplomat. We got t-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs, from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Repping the present teams of the Global War on Terror, with items for citizen soldiers of use of KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. Collections include suits and shoots for fans of jumping out of airplanes and looking good, Pineland to remember your trip to the People's Republic, and Lewis and Clark to honor the two party animals who popularized huge DTS vouchers. You want Pipox? We got Pipox. New items all the time. Custom flags, stickers, and shirts? Send us an email. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at LC38Brand or contact us at info at LC38Brand.com. LC38Brand.com. It's cool to like your job. Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Welcome back to the One CA Podcast and our guest today talking about the FAO program and, uh, and civil affairs. So gentlemen, let's now talk about this connection between FAOs and CA. Zach, to you first, are there overlapping missions or do FAOs and CA personnel complement each other? It's definitely a complementary relationship. And again, I'm speaking from my personal experience, and which is not universal, but particularly in my time in El Salvador, we had a really good relationship between my security cooperation office and our civil affairs teams. Part of the civil affairs mission set you know, through, I guess, civil reconnaissance, they're out getting access to different areas of the country for, for whatever purpose. For us, it was nice because we were able to provide funding. Like, for example, um, Southcom had humanitarian assistance funding that we basically let our civil affairs team take and execute programs under the um, security cooperation program. Okay. Kevin, let me ask you this question because you're coming from the CA world, now crossing over to, I don't know if it's the darker side, the better side, the more exciting side, who knows, you'll see. So what do you see as getting into the FAO world now? Do you feel like FAOs and CA individuals complement each other in the missions that they do and where they work? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. And uh, I, I would like to add, I don't know that there's a darker side or a lighter side, it's just another side. <laughs> I've switched jobs from aviation to CA and now to FAO again, and who knows what else in the future. It's all just another side of, you know, this, this big machine. But uh, yeah, so the short answer is uh, they're not always over, overlapping in the sense that they reside within the same um, set of authorities or, or chain of command. Um, I think this varies a lot from country to country. However, it is, at least from my perspective and from the perspective of civil affairs, um, very important and essential that their mission um, complements, or at the very least, does not detract from what a FAO is uh, attempting to accomplish 
in his or her area of expertise. So to sort of understand this a little better, I thought it might make a bit of sense to start with CA doctrine, and I'm just going to apologize up front for that. It's just like my nerve brain coming in. So uh, doctrinally, CA's role is to understand, engage, and influence partners in, in the local population and their institutions by, you know, carry out military governance, enabling civil military operations, providing civil considerations expertise, uh, and through the planning and execution of what's called civil affairs operations, which we know, I would assume a lot of our listeners know that um, doctrinally only um, civil affairs units or forces can actually carry out CAO as it's called. So CAO to break it down into its, its two pieces is comprised of civil uh, engagement and civil reconnaissance. So civil reconnaissance, reconnaissance just going out and, and looking for stuff. What can I see? What can I report on? What can I find? Civil engagement very simply is just uh, meeting with someone and having a meeting or talking with uh, someone. So the intent of these two things is to interact with and affect the civil component or people, organizations, and their capabilities in ways that enhance the commander or boss's uh, situational understanding, mitigate threats to society, uh, and to consolidate our gains in support of strategic objectives that ultimately build a favorable AO for the U.S. government from the strategic uh, perspective. So all that jargon and like sort of nonsense to say that uh, CA forces can't do any of that, what I just mentioned without being actively and acutely involved with um, the host nation, civilian and government institutions for that matter. So these are obviously the realms of the FAO and, you know, these engagements that CA folks are doing overseas and the operations that they're carrying out can possibly have a profound effect on a FAO's work representing the U.S. Embassy and especially the U.S. military in a, in a host country. So that's good and bad. Um, and understanding that, I think, will be extremely useful for a CA team leader and, and his or her team, you know, going downrange somewhere. Thanks for that perspective. Since FAOs are usually serving as staff in the U.S. Embassy, um, and Zach, you've done this before, is there a reporting requirement from a CA team or civil military support element, SIMC, to the FAO? Does that happen? Or is, is the FAO somehow in the chain of command? for a CA team that's operating in country to get up to the U.S. Embassy staff to the uh, SDO DAT, for example? That's a very good question with a complicated answer. At a minimum, the SDO DAT has force protection responsibility for all DOD personnel that are operating in a country that aren't directly assigned to the United States Embassy. So if a civil affairs team deploys to a country, that the SDO DAT is going to have force protection responsibility over those guys at a minimum. So that's taking a look at vetting their drivers. If they have, you know, contracted vehicles with drivers, um, their residence is making sure that it meets some sort of security requirement. It's not quite as stringent as uh, embassy folks, but still making sure that that where they're living is safe. Earlier, uh, Kevin mentioned the the triangle between the embassy, the partner nation, and the geographic. Uh, combatant commander. There's another layer to that onion when you add in the service components of the combatant command, like Army South or um, SOC South, Special Operations Command South. You've got your civil affairs team that deploys to a country. Their battalion commander is back at Fort Bragg. Their company commander is back at Fort Bragg. So that's their that's their rating chain. But you're working for SOC South. You're reporting to a major at the forward element of SOC South, and that's who's giving you your taskings. 
And, you know, he's telling you where to go out to conduct your civil engagement, your civil reconnaissance. That's where those missions are coming from. In theory, they're nested with the security cooperation office's plan. At the, the highest echelons, you've got the integrated country strategy, which is the ambassador's plan for everything that the U.S. government is doing in a country. And in that plan, there are tasks to DOD units. The Security Cooperation Office is working off Southcom's or the, the Geographic Combatant Command's uh, theater campaign plan, which is going to contain a country-specific security cooperation plan, which the SCO is heavily involved in, in that planning. Theoretically, the special operations component is nested in that plan from Southcom or the Geographic Combatant Command. But where we had hiccups or where I've seen hiccups were where they didn't exactly align. And so it's a complicated relationship. The folks that I've seen that have been successful, like our most successful civil affairs teams that came down to El Salvador, for example, were the guys that knew how to bridge the gap. Yeah, that's great. And let's get to some of that. Kevin, what have you seen work effectively or not to, to the points that Colonel Holland just talked about? Yeah, I, you know, I think um, there often isn't a reporting requirement that's actually dictated in some sort of op order or policy, but if there isn't one, I, I think there ought to be, or I think the CA team should, should work hard to ensure that there is one uh, to sort of ensure open and transparent communication between their team and then everybody else on the mill team working in the embassy. As we talked about um, in, in FAO world and CA world, there's this weird sort of complicated bureaucratic web of command relationships, both informal and formal. And it can be really tough to kind of understand which of your 10 bosses at any given time is, is the most important. In that sense, like sort of rearing what I are, I've already said, it's important for CA teams to remember that you know, anything the U.S. military does in a FAO's country of assignment affects the overall political military environment. Um, so in that sense, consistent, accurate, and also honest reporting to the mill team, even if not required, uh, will help keep the country team informed and ultimately help them seize opportunities or alternatively um, give them time and space to respond to either developing crises or any sort of uh, negative circumstances. But to answer your question, I think at the end of the day, it all goes back to personal relationships. Uh, and as CA folks, and I assume in the FAO world, you know, as well, you know, nurturing and, and managing personal and professional relationships will really yield positive results in the embassy. Yeah, that's good to hear. And, and that kind of uh, gets to a question I plan to ask you, gentlemen, but you've already started to answer this, about how, um, if you've seen FAOs and CA teams working together effectively, uh, so you've already kind of touched on that. Let me close with this final question. Kevin, I'll start with you first and then and Zach. So, Building on some of those experience about how that they may report to each other or collaborate and, and how those uh, missions are nesting and what those tasks are, how can these two communities continue to bridge any gaps or collaborate to a greater extent on future missions? And that may start with just knowing who to call, how to reach out to one side or the other to, to do planning. Kevin, what do you see as some ways forward? Um, I've thought a lot about this in the last few years, especially, you know, since I got back from a, a CA mission in, in Gabon in, in Central West Africa and sort of thinking about how can we make this relationship better for both sides? Because both sides feel like they have 
the most important job to do, and it's an essential job for you know U.S. strategic objectives overseas. And I think it's I, I pull it down to kind of three things. First of all, a lot of this is going to be focused on from a CA perspective, um, but you know CA folks sort of having a comprehensive understanding of the structure of the U.S. government foreign policy apparatus to include what an embassy is, its organization, how it functions. I think CA teams in the community more broadly have to do a better job educating their soldiers on the mission, purpose, and, and organizational structure of a typical country team, um, especially where the attache and the, the OSC or the SCO fit into that picture. Um, so when they get things downrange, like movement or reporting requirements or you know, official protocol for higher level civil engagements, they understand the why behind those and why you know, an embassy has these sort of policies in place. Second of the three is sort of humility and understanding the, the greater context of what's going on. In general, a CA team has a fairly narrow mission focus when they're in a country on mission compared to the scope of what a FAO typically will have uh, on their mill team. Since, if, you know, the FAO is a member of a team of diverse government representatives, you know, working for the ambassador in a given country, it's I think it's really important for CA teams to understand that within the context of the U.S. government interagency-wide uh, objectives in a given country or region, their mission is more than likely just a small piece of the overall puzzle and is almost certainly not the main effort. Um, and I think it's essential to understand that you're part of a team uh, and to behave as such and, and to serve as such. Uh, lastly, I think this one's super important for especially folks sort of new to the worlds um, or the gym environment, as they, as they say, um, scope. So um, CA and the military more broadly tend to approach problems and, and things in a short-term results-oriented manner. Um, team shows up to a country for a six-month rotation. They want to make their mark, have an impact, and get the job done, just like everybody else. But at the end of the day, um, they go home after six months uh, and they move on, being largely separated from the effects that they have or didn't have on the ground, good or bad. On the other hand, the rest of the interagency, the folks working in and around the embassy, especially in the State Department, you know, they tend to view things with a much longer term sort of strategic lens. For example, an ambassador is probably thinking about how to, how to manage and strengthen bilateral relations uh, for, for decades, not just like a six month window. And this is almost always like amidst a, a complicated and sort of dynamic backdrop of changing alliances, crises, current events, conflicts, things of that nature. Um, so after a CA team goes home and tells their war stories and tells of glory to their friends back in Bragg or wherever, um, the country team, uh, including especially the FAOs uh, and their staff, uh, they're the ones who are going to be left dealing with, you know, the effects of what a CA team did or did not accomplish in country. And I think, you know, taking a step back, especially as a CA team leader or anybody on the CA team, taking a step back and realizing the scope of what's going on in country X overseas, I think we'll, we'll pay dividends for, for both the country team and as well as the CA community. Kevin, thank you very much. Uh, Zach, what could you add to that? How, how can these communities start to bridge any gaps that may exist or work together better in the future? Personally, I think that the civil affairs teams, uh, especially the ones that I've had the opportunity to work with in the past, they played a key role in supporting the overall U.S. government mission abroad. Uh, in my particular case in El Salvador. My civil affairs teams had the best relationships with military unit commanders, with local police chiefs, with mayors. They knew everyone, everywhere in the country. El Salvador is a small country, but we had two civil affairs teams and they, they knew everyone and were on very good terms. And so 
if I needed something in, you know, in the second brigade area of operations, I'd probably call my civil affairs guy first and say, Hey, can you help me set this up? Um, and so just huge dividends from the work that the civil affairs teams were doing. One of the challenges that, that I've seen is, and this, I think this is going to change in the future. You know, a lot of times we get in the mindset of deployment to the Middle East, you know, to either Iraq or Afghanistan or, or um, some other area of conflict. And then to deploy on, you know, a mission supporting, you know, Colombia or El Salvador or wherever else, it's a different mission. It's a different mindset. And so you've got to be able to kind of to gear down and you're not, you know, it, it's not a combat deployment. And so the, the operational requirements are a little different and, and how you go about working within the framework of the embassy and the overall U.S. government mission there is different. So that would be one thing that I would say is just, you know, slow down a little bit, take a look at what, uh, what the overall mission is, and then go from there. Awesome. Gentlemen, uh, this is not a question I sent to you in advance, but what is your elevator pitch? Uh, Kevin, let me start with you first, because they got you, man. You, you bought into it. What would be your elevator pitch now that you've seen some of the inside of the FAO program in this pipeline for anyone who's civil affairs who may want to consider FAO? Well, when I go overseas this time, I can bring my family, which is almost always. In most cases, let me let me let me say that. Maybe my wife will listen to this and be upset. So, um, um, language training, great language training, and then uh, you know a free advanced degree from any one of the great you know graduate schools in this country. Um, yeah, I don't, it's hard to beat that. And then who wouldn't want to be the belly button of a triangle? That's that's exceptional. It is. That's what all the lint is. You say, man, what's the uh, what's the elevator pitch uh, now that you're on your way out? How do you, what kind of people do you want to follow you? Uh, in addition to Kevin, who else do you want in the FAO program or the pipeline to be the next uh, FAO leaders? I'd say that the the Army has done has done itself a great service by changing the the accessions into FAO. I really was just a mediocre guy, and I didn't even ask to be a FAO. The Army said, "Hey, you're going to go." you're going to go be a FAO. They took the hillbilly from South Carolina and said, we're going to make you the regional and cultural expert, which it still blows my mind. Um, but I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of guys coming up in the FAO program and the, the quality of the soldier assessed into the FAO program, it just keeps getting better. And so if you want to become a FAO, you, you need to be on the, on the top of your game to make it through the VTIP process because the, the competition is stiff. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This has been a really good conversation talking to 1CA podcast with Zach Heilman and Kevin Chapla about the Foreign Affairs Officer Program and Civil Affairs. Gentlemen, thanks for your time. Thanks for having us, John. Good to see you again. Thanks a lot. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, 
Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Representing the present teams of the global war on terror, we have items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job.